Lord, we've gathered in Your house where only You can bless. So we are looking to You one more time. It's not one last time. It is the last evening in our series. You've said, Lord, that when we seek first Your kingdom, everything else will be added unto us. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that those things are added unto us as well. And now, Lord, I pray guide in this presentation and bless us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Babylon, the fall and the call. Something has happened to Christianity in the world. And that is that somehow it's gone from representing one value system and to apparently not believing in that value system anymore. It's created quite a crisis. It's created a crisis in our culture. We have a new problem with violence and lying and immorality that we didn't used to have, not in the, not in the degree and intensity. It's created a problem in homes where children are finding themselves more often without the sweet banner of mom and daddy love over them. And you know, the Bible says that God's banner over us is love. He invited us to the banqueting table and His banner over us is love. And this uh, United States of America, which was born out of a quest to be free, to know God and worship God, took on a reputation as a Christian nation. But what we've seen over the last 50 or 60 years is that that Christian lifestyle has been abandoned and now there are parts of the world who wonder and some who even resent the fact that we call ourselves Christian, but we flood the world with more evil through our media outlets than any other nation on the face of the planet. There are people out there of different faiths who look at America and realize to call it Christian is a contradiction of terms. And there's a resentment that builds in because culture that comes out of Hollywood is now become global. And there are people who see their cultures and their traditions being ruined by the almost irresistible mental food, if we want to call it that. It's surely mental junk food. It's worse than that. It's spiritually soul-destroying food for the mind. So we find ourselves in a place to where the world's wondering if anything's real. Does anybody tell the truth? And we're left with science saying that uh, God is a figment of our social imagination. It's, it's a desire of our heart. So all these things were just created. So when Dr. Herb, uh, Dr. Gallus was here, he could take us through all this redactory criticism of the Bible. And the end product is, is that most modern Christian denominations, unless they are called by the word fundamental, which is another dirty word, at least in the minds of the new modern liberals and progressives, if you aren't in the category of being called a fundamental Christian, your church probably does not even believe that the Bible is inspired. I know that is always big news for some people, but it's a fact. So in many Christian denominations today, the, the Bible is a good historical book about Jews and it tells a story about Jesus. That does leave them with some real logical uh, quagmires because 
if Jesus says He's the Son of God and He's the only way to eternal life, you're stuck. He's either the biggest liar or He's the absolute truth-teller. And I better find out for myself if this book is different than other books. And if it is what it says it is, inspired by God. The only way to know that and to do that is to read it for yourself and pray to God. And ask God to guide you. And ask God to save you from deception. And find out if God is real. Why do you think there's a commandment that says, Thou shalt not make any graven images unto me? Most all of the world, for most of its history, has wanted something it could see and something it could bow down to. And there are even Christian denominations where there's images and idols. But God does not want a visible worship representation of himself. I'm not here to say it's wrong to have an artist's rendition of a picture of Jesus. He was a historical earthly figure. But God specifically does not want us having a, an idol, a creation to which we worship, because he wants to know us in a living relationship. He wants to inhabit our experience as a human being, speak to us, walk with us, talk with us, guide us, provide for us. He wants us to have communion with Him through the day, to talk. He loves to hear us sing our praises. These are all things that God designed. He wanted to be the unseen but known God. And that knowing is deeper than knowing any other human being. The best illustration we have is marriage, but even two married people don't always know what each other is thinking. Genuine Christianity is a item that is costly to have, but priceless to have. And the beauty of it is, is that when my life is fully surrendered to God, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, and the witness of Christ, who's changed my life, is evident in everything about me, it's impossible not to notice that I'm no longer really operating like most earthlings, like most human beings. You see, it's how Christians live that is the greatest advertisement for Christianity. It's not that a preacher like me tonight is standing up here telling you what the Bible says. Somebody smarter and more informed could maybe do a better job, but the truth of the matter is it's not enough to know Christian doctrine. We talked the other night, it's like the bones in our body, but we need to experience the love of God and live out the salvation He's given to us by living above our natural inclinations. And when that happens through the indwelling Christ, you can't do that on your own. But when that happens, it's impossible not to notice. There's an there's an atmosphere, there's a, there's a sense about a Christian. I mean, I can sometimes tell when I'm in the grocery store, and I think some of them can tell when they see me. It might be just a smile or a joy in my eyes, kind of a, this indomitable, which means you can't put it down hope. And sometimes I'm sure just passing people in places, because I think Christians are often making eye contact with people, just passing on a smile or a good word. I mean, it's like the two ladies. I come here early in the morning and I walk the parking lot. And we have uh, some of our public school instructors that 
park out in the back of our parking lot, you know, just this morning, just greeting them. I could have just kept walking with my head down. But you know, I'm a Christian. I've got the everlasting fountain of life flowing inside of me. And if I can pass on a good word to somebody, I'm going to do it. So I made eye contact with him. We had just a really short, wonderful little discussion. Friends, you cannot skip. And you cannot live a life that's not architected and, and oriented and engineered for knowing God. You can't stay up so late that you can't get up in the morning and do what David, he said, he said, Lord, in the morning you'll hear my voice. Psalm 5. Read it. You must begin your day receiving a fresh draft, a fresh drink from the well of life. And you've got to go into that day having had a chance to talk to God about everything that's on your mind, praise Him for what He's done, put everything that's going to happen in before Him and ask Him to guide and direct you in it. There's nothing like it. And I'll tell you, when I'm afraid and I'm stressed and I'm worried, I like to find a quiet place where I can get down on my knees and pray. And when I'm done praying, I get up, I feel better, it's going to be okay. I gave it back to God and God gave some assurance back to me. And I've got strength. Genuine Christianity. Now, this slide is the first of, of several I'm going to show you tonight, but I need to tell you something. When we look at the book of Revelation and we see these fantastic symbols, some of them are pretty easy to figure out, but a few of them you could wonder about. But I need you to know something. When Jesus came to this earth, who did Satan work through to destroy him? Think about it. Two entities. Who did Satan work through to destroy Jesus when he came? He worked first through the church. Don't miss it. There's always going to be a true church and a false church. There's going to be true people in any church and false people in the same church. Jesus told that parable about the weeds and the wheat. We call it the wheat and the tares. And after those plants come up and get big enough, the workers look at them and say, Master, some of those are weeds. Should we pull them up? Jesus said, no, because you might pull up some of the other stuff, some of your gardeners. And by the time the plant gets big enough to distinguish, it's got its roots out into the plants next to it. And if you go pulling on those weeds, you're going to yank up some of the other stuff. Jesus said, no, let them grow together until the harvest. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you show up at this church tomorrow morning, you need to know. Some of the people in this church are very much in love with Jesus. Some are here because it's all they've ever known all their life, and their best friends are here, but they've not cracked a Bible, and they haven't been on their knees in decades, and they might not treat you the right way. So whatever church you go to, just know that the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares are growing together. But you know, friends... There are some that have never met Jesus, even though it's been their culture to come here. But being here, they might meet Him. Because faith comes by hearing, and the hearing by the Word of God. So the message that's preached might get through. But what's my point? I'm about to show you tonight that there's two cities, and there's two women, and there's two fates in the book of Revelation. But I don't want you to think, because in the Bible, a woman represents a church. I'm not going to take time to show you that, but it's in the book of Jeremiah. A woman represents a church. So we've got a wicked woman, and we've got a pure woman. 
that beast with all those horns, I hate to say it, but that beast represents a church that has a masquerading facade. You know what that is? It's like a Halloween costume. And when we get down to the very end, the knockdown, drag out battle that leads up to Armageddon is between a false, a, the false church, which is in the majority and it's massive, and God's small minority, like David going up against Goliath. But when we look into this book, what we need to understand is that the devil's most effective work as a false prophet is to masquerade as a true church. That's why you need to be prayerful and in the Word so that you have a discerning spirit. All right. The nearer we approach the end of verse history, the stronger and more numerous will be Satan's temptations. He will work with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. This is a quote from a woman by the name of Ellen White. So that if it were possible, he might deceive the very elect. He will bring in every device to hinder our preparation for that which is to come upon the earth. Now, don't miss this. Let's go back. I want you to see that the temptations will be, let's just get these words, they will be stronger and more numerous. So, God have mercy on all of you that are raising little children right now. I'm about done with that. None of mine are little anymore, even though I'm still taking care of one of them. At least financially. <laughs> but, if right now you've got the oversight of the discipleship of children, you need to know something. Stronger and more numerous. Alright? So, what's the devil going to do to the parents? The devils, since he doesn't want effective ministry in the home, he's going to bring in every device to hinder preparation. So what does that mean? We give up family worship in the morning. We give up family worship in the evening. We don't read the Bible together. We don't sing together. We don't study the Bible and the Sabbath school lesson together. We give all that up. You know what it means? It means you might get out of Egypt and leave your children behind. And it means they might not get out. When we're talking about Egypt, we're talking symbolically Egypt was the country that held Israel in bondage. It becomes a symbol for being stuck on this world, which the Bible will refer to as a in general, as spiritual Egypt. Jesus came to deliver us from sin. So you can imagine the devil's going to make stronger, more numerous temptations, and he's going to create every device to hinder our preparation. So I want to ask you, friends, what's so important in your life tonight that you're willing to let go of hiding God's Word in your heart? That you're willing to never learn those songs, never sing those hymns, never know the joy of kneeling in a family circle. What are you willing? Are you willing to let the devil come into your home and pipe programs into your mind, in your kid's mind, to where the Bible is a very, very boring book? Did you ever notice something about this book? There's not a single picture in it. Ay, ay, ay. Better have some pretty good stories. It's got the most amazing stories in the world. And some people haven't read them in a long time and they haven't let their minds, the imagination work with what's on the printed page. All right, let's go on. 
The final crisis that's coming upon our world will lead men and women to make one of two decisions, either completely for Christ or completely against Christ. You know, you know how often you have to make that decision? Every day and sometimes multiple times in the day. But that's what you have to do. So tonight, I want to go to the second angel's message. Take those Bibles out of the pew in front of you and open them up to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. If you are not familiar with the Bible, it's the last book in the, bu- in the book. It's the last little sub-book in the book we call the Bible. So go to the back of the book and look for the book called Revelation and go to the chapter entitled 14. And I want to look at the second angel's message. Now last night we saw there's a message of judgment. I was in a mosque today and had a very neat experience learning more about uh, my friends that are Islamic in their faith. And I want to tell you, judgment is a big deal in their communion. They know they're going to face a judgment. And the person who explained what I watched today made it very clear to me that everything I've done or do will be written down. It might not be known on earth by men, but it'll be known by God. I want all of my friends from that faith to know as Christians, we believe in three messages at the end of time that need to be given because we know we have a timeline that tells us when that judgment begins in heaven. And we're living in the day of judgment. But when we go past the angel, which is declaring that the hour of judgment has come, we come to a second angel. Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, I have a New American Standard Bible I'm reading out of up here, which is a slightly different version than the one in those pews. But the message is the same. She who has made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. There's something wrong with this church which is referred to as a her. Did you notice that? Babylon is called her. John the Revelator knows that this term for Babylon represents the false church, the wicked church, the woman who rides the beast in Revelation 17. And what he's saying is, whether you can see it right now or not, with a discerning eye, you can. Babylon is bad on the inside. She's fallen. Now, even though she is fallen, she hasn't fell yet. The Bible says some people's sins go before them, some follow after them. In this case, when we look at Revelation 17 and 18, we see that Babylon will fall in one day, just like the literal Babylon fell in one day. All right. The city of Babylon, as we remember, our first prophecy in the book of Daniel chapter 2 was represented by the head of gold. Daniel knew the king's dream, which was his credibility for explaining the king's dream. Nobody else could remember it. But Daniel remembered what the king dreamed. And he said, the image Uh, the vision upon your bed was this. You saw a great image whose head was gold, whose arms were silver, whose midsection was bronze, whose legs were iron, and whose feet were iron and clay, and a stone cut out without hand struck the image. Daniel said, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is the head of gold. 
We move through this, and what we see is that after Jerusalem is smashed, it's crushed, it's destroyed, after the Israelites are dispersed, the kingdom of God's going to start dealing with is the kingdom that's taking his people captive. And what we see as we progress down through here is that Babylon goes farther than God wanted Babylon to go. Now I explained to you that Nebuchadnezzar came three times to Jerusalem. He came in 606 or 605 B.C. And he took Daniel back and all the good-looking young men that he could make into ambassadors and, and subject governors for his kingdom. He was going to brainwash them. He came back about nine years later, and that's when he took Ezekiel and all the artisans, all the skilled craftsmen. And basically, every time he came back, he was basically saying, now quit rebelling. Quit making me do this. I don't want to come from Babylon again and do this. And the last time he came back, it was after 11 years of rebellion. It's like as soon as Babylon's gone, Israel's back to rebelling. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes back the last time, he does more than God gave him permission to do. He tears the place down. People are dying left and right. Remember I told you Jeremiah had been telling them, surrender and it'll be okay. Surrender and it'll be okay. Yes, you're going to be punished for your sins of departing from God, but surrender and you'll live. He even went to the king and told him this, surrender and you'll live. But the king was afraid. Because after all these years of rebellion, he figured Jeremiah couldn't be right. The king Nebuchadnezzar had to be mad. And they threw him down in that pit. And Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to the king, you shouldn't have done that. You need to get him out. And the Bible's so detailed, the king even tells Ebed-Melech where there's a pile of rags, go get them and tie them together so you can put them under his arms so when you pull him up out of the pit, you don't do him harm. And God sent a message through Jeremiah telling Ebed-Melech, your life will be spared for this. Listen, friends, when those Babylonians came through the city that time, it had to be scary. Most people were dying. Ebed-Melech had a word from God that came through Jeremiah and said, because you looked out for my servant Jeremiah, I'm giving you your life. There isn't going to be a person who perishes through any trouble that's coming on the face of this earth without permission from God And God knowing they're either ready to lay down and surrender their life or He needs to protect them so that they can have confidence when they face death or the next challenge they face. Friends, don't be afraid. But when when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he killed little babies. He killed women, young girls, young men. The blood flowed in the streets. And God never forgot. And God basically said, He's going to have to pay for this. His kingdom will. What happened was, was it two generations later, three, you could say, we're down to Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and the Babylonians have become so proud, so cocky, so confident, they didn't know that God had prophesied in the book of Isaiah that a Median and Persian king by the name of Cyrus was actually going to come in and take the city. Nebuchadnezzar was pretty confident. The king spoke saying, it's not this great Babylon. I've built it for a royal dwelling by my might and power for the honor of my majesty. And uh, I'm going to hit the play button on this. It's a little, I don't know why it's doing this, but uh, 
it might work right and it might be a little jerky. But what I'm about to show you is how Cyrus conquered the city. Babylon was so fortified, a river ran through the middle of it. Along the river were walls of fortification, just like the perimeter walls. They had gates. Babylon had enough ground inside the walls that they could perpetually grow food, and they had the mighty Euphrates River running right through their city. You could never get them. Their walls were so high, so thick, so strong that nobody on the inside had the slightest bit of worry that the Medes and the Persians were sitting outside waiting for an opportunity. And what is Belshazzar doing? The grandson of Nebuchadnezzar? He's in there partying. It's a drunken, immoral orgy. It's a festival in which the celebration is going to go so wrong that even the God that Nebuchadnezzar gave his life to, because when you come to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony after he was made to live like a beast for seven years. Oh, if you haven't read it, read it. It's an amazing story. <laughs> Old Nebuchadnezzar's so proud. He's already seen God's God and he's declared him as God, but he's so proud he won't humble himself. And Daniel tells him, you need to humble yourself. And he does it. And he becomes a beast. And he eats the grass like a cow. I mean, Everybody knew this. Nebuchadnezzar's last words in recorded Scripture are a testimony to the living God. I plan to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But here's his grandson. And you know, it's hard to keep faith alive. It's hard to keep it alive in your kids, especially if you don't engage in the mission of proclaiming your faith. And so on one night, 70 years after Daniel had been taken captive... They're having this party and Cyrus comes along with his army and he diverts the Euphrates River and he goes under the gates that go across the river. He comes inside the city and nobody is guarding the gates along the riverbank. They're open. That's how confident they are. And Cyrus goes in and takes the city hardly without resistance. And Babylon falls in one day, which is exactly what the book of Revelation says will happen to the spiritual Babylon that we're going to face. So let's see what happens. All right, here we go. Under the riverbed, under the gate, along the riverbed, and the gates in the wall. I think this computer's a little better than mine. That's how Cyrus came in. He took the city. Nebuchadnezzar had fortified it, the fortifications of Asiglia, and Babylon, I strengthen and I establish the name of my reign forever. But on October 13, 539 B.C., Babylon fell. The Babylonian Empire ended in a day. That is phenomenal, unusual, and an amazing function of prophecy. And in Isaiah 45, about 180 years before this happened, God had told this is what would happen. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus is a type of a Messiah. He's a deliverer whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings and open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. You see, Cyrus is going to give the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. He is God's anointed monarch. 
As Nebuchadnezzar had reverence for the true God, so did Cyrus. And God gave him victory. It's an amazing story. And when those guys come in, it must have been a dream come true. They didn't know God was making the way for them. Not too many of those Median and Persian soldiers were going to die. But when Belshazzar, the grandson of the king's in there, all of a sudden the partying comes to an end. The banquet's playing. The laughter dies. Because written on the wall is many, many tekel ufarsin. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Daniel is even brought in to interpret, and the kingdom's gone. That's the literal fall of Babylon. Why did Babylon fall? Because of their barbarism to Judah. God was going to repay them for dashing their infants against the stones. I don't even like to put the words on my lips. And the other reason is that that night, Belshazzar, in the midst of his rebellion against God, says, hey, those Jewish people. I mean, Daniel had only been a monarch for decades, but it appears, I mean, not a monarch, but a, the highest prefect or the highest governor. But it appears that Daniel was marginalized when Belshazzar became king. Take courage, friends. In your career, you may occasionally feel like you're marginalized too. But you know what? God can resurrect your career anytime he wants. And when Cyrus comes on the scene, guess who rises right up to the top again? It's Daniel. Your career's in God's hands. Stand up for your values. Daniel did for his, and my guess, it cost him being the chief prefect over the entire Babylonian uh, territory. So, two women are in the book of Revelation. A pure woman wearing a crown with 12 stars and a wicked woman that's riding a beast. They're two churches. The Bible declares that he's likened Zion to a comely and delicate woman. We don't make these things up on our own. Most all of Protestant Christendom accepts the fact that a woman represents a church. It just so happens there's two churches represented in the book of Revelation. One is immoral and commits adultery, and she's made all nations drink of the wine of her fornication. It's almost like she's invited the world to a party. And as a matter of fact, the truth of the matter is, one church, and now we're seeing more churches do it, are glad to imbibe the principles of the world and let people go right on sinning, not pronounce words that would create a moral consciousness, produce some measure of second-guessing, maybe even leave people with the sense of guilt that they already have in the eyes of heaven. And indeed, today we see many Protestant churches that have abandoned their prophetic role and they've imbibed business principles and people get to kind of live the good life. And there's not a call to do for the poor and to preach the gospel. There's two cities told about in the book of Revelation. One is the New Jerusalem and one is Babylon. And the strange thing is, is that both of these cities fall. Babylon has a curse pronounced over it or whoever tries to raise it up again. And there's two destinies in the book of Revelation. If you throw in your lot with the false church, you will experience that moment when you realize too late my assurance was false. The Holy Spirit was speaking to me and I ignored it because the preacher said... My mom and dad said, my teacher said, none of that's going to take the place for being on your knees and opening the Bible and hearing what the Holy Spirit says through the Word of God. Now I want to talk about the development of Protestantism. I mentioned the other day when Martin Luther rediscovered righteousness by faith, it changed the world. It changed the world because people like Wycliffe and Tyndale had, had uh, 
sacrificed security and even life itself to put the Bible in the language of the ordinary people. Luther, building on that, put the Bible in the language of the German people. And thus was born Lutheranism. But along comes others who, who further developed the doctrine of grace, like Calvin. And along come others, like the Anabaptists, who say, you know what? You shouldn't baptize babies. They can't make a decision for God. They're not destined to hell when they're born because of original sin. They need to have time to grow and, and make a decision. And they should be baptized when they come to an age of understanding. And it should be by immersion. And then we move on to people like Wesley who said our lives should be different. There should be system and method. Thus we have the term Methodist. And all things should be ordered by God as a witness of holiness in lifestyle. And we progress through the, the, Advent, through the Reformation and we see this rediscovery of Bible truth. And we come up even to what I believe the Adventist church's role is, where the Adventist church adds to the, I don't want to use the word pantheon, but to the, 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 the well, to the collection of rediscovered truth. It adds the knowledge that when you die, you're dead, and you don't burn forever in hell, and there is a heavenly sanctuary, and the law of God is unchanging, including the fourth commandment that calls us into a relationship and also that there should be and will be in God's end time people. They'll keep the commandments of God. This is from Revelation twelve seventeen. Look right there. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. And friends, we learn that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of what? Prophecy. Yes, there is a continual reestablishment of Bible truth. But there's been an implosion of Protestantism. And you may not have known this. But starting in 1965, the Protestant churches of America grew every year for 200 years. But beginning in 1965, they started losing membership. And if you were to study the statistics, I wish I had them up here in a bar graph to show you how drastic it is. The Presbyterian church, the Methodist church, some of these grand classical churches for whom I have much respect, their membership, it's like they have fallen off a cliff. And they are losing what was gained by sacrifice by their founders and pioneers. Why? That's an important question. Ken DeCreasy Dean wrote a book called Almost Christian. You can't, perhaps, well, maybe you can, what the faith of our teenagers is telling the American church. She coined a new term. She called it moral therapeutic deism. What's that, Pastor? Moral therapeutic deism. It's the idea that, that God's like a big buddy and a good counselor up in heaven, and He knows I'm really kind of good, and He wouldn't want to make me feel too bad. And so churches, make sure you don't do that either. And I'm different than all of you, and I'm special, and I have special needs. We're living in a strange day. It's a day in which the dysfunction of a wrong understanding of what love is is ruining and destroying liberty, freedom, spiritual confidence. Why did Jerusalem fall? I want to talk about this for a minute. Why was it when Nebuchadnezzar finally came back the third time. Why was Jerusalem destined to fall? Two reasons. 
And why do you think the apocalyptic church looks like it's about to fall? And when I say apocalyptic, what do I mean? The true church of the book of Revelation. Why does it look like it's about to fall? There's two reasons. Conformity to worldly customs will always convert the church to the world. It never converts the world to the church. And right now, for the last 40, 50 years, the church has been conforming to the world. As a matter of fact, if you listen carefully to the news and you think about the progressive agenda that you hear spoken of, in which nothing's immoral, the only thing immoral is for you to call something immoral. Uh, Please, I wish you could be taken back by that statement. The only thing immoral is for you to call something immoral, especially if the new grace-based approach to socializing people and making sure everybody feels good is in place. Now, I think Christians should be the nicest people in the world. Do you agree? But I'm here to tell you, we're living in an age in which the church has lost its voice and no longer has the ability to hold the collective conscience of our society in check. The church is finding itself weak because it has conformed to the world. Jerusalem fell because it lost its first love and its faithfulness to God. Jerusalem had gone so far that they were sacrificing babies. And I want to tell you how they did it. Gruesome. They had a God called Molech. He had his arms out like this. And they would heat him up red hot in the fire. And then they would take a baby and they would put the baby on the arms. Can you imagine? And it would be seared and scorched and burnt to death. Now do you know why God pronounced judgment on the Canaanites and all of those who possessed the land before Judah got it? For things that weren't even as wicked as that. They had left behind morality. They still kept, a lot of them still kept going to church. And you know the other reason Jerusalem was destroyed? Please don't miss this. Because they ignored God's true prophets. Now for some of you tonight, there are books sitting on your shelves. And one of my preaching friends in this town by the name of Pastor Dwight Nelson said, we ought not to call those the little red books. We ought to call those the unread books. Oh, it's a powerful phrase. It's never left my mind. He was my pastor when I was a college student. Those that are living in the last days who do not listen to the prophetic voice given by inspiration. Those who are too busy to hearken to the prophets may find themselves in the same situation. Interesting book by Larry Hattato, Destroyer of the Gods. I'll go through this kind of quickly. Does anybody know what all of these uh, gods have in common? They were all part of the Roman pantheon. And some of you are familiar with something like Poseidon because Hollywood makes movies out of things. All of these were part of the many gods that the Romans had. And what I want you to see is that the dominant view of Christians was negative. 
It involved wild rumors among the general populace, and, and it was studied ridicule and critique among the elite, you know, the, the, the people that were way above everybody else. A new and wicked superstition is what one such negative characteristic of Christianity by a Roman writer named Suetonius. To be a Christian was to be looked down on. I mean, it was to be made fun of. And during the third century, there were even occasional imperially sponsored empire-wide efforts against the movement in spasms of violent suppression especially under certain emperors such as Decius. In other words, Pliny would say in his segment of the Roman Empire, if you won't bow down and kiss this image, you'll die. Because he knew a Christian wouldn't do it. And there were lots of people who died. And many more that were made fun of and ostracized and endured economic hardship. Celsius characterized Celsius characterized Christians as lower-class simpletons, easily deluded, and their faith more to be pitied than admired. If you were, but if you were to go out into the streets of almost city, any city today, at least in most Western nations, and you were to ask people, do you believe in God? You would probably get one of three replies. Now, I started this slide with a bunch of Roman deities up, didn't I? I just want you to remember, that was the mightiest empire to rule the globe. The longest duration, the hardest fist, the strongest armies, Rome. But if I were to take a survey down here at Apple Valley or go into Benton Harbor and stand in front of Meyer and say, do you believe in God? They wouldn't say, well, let's do the next slide. They would say yes, no, or I'm not sure. Likely no one would ask what you meant by God or which deity you have in mind. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. There's a story behind that. These poor, simpleton Christians, these made fun of people, these people who died, they conquered the Roman Empire. They spread and couldn't be stopped. Why? Because they were willing to be different. Why? Because they loved Jesus. Their difference was a beautiful difference, but they weren't going to be forced into submission to something they knew was empty. They knew if they died... They'd wake in the resurrection morning and see Jesus. The Christians won over all the pagan deities. And when you go around the world today, all Christians can have a great confidence to know that the shoulders of the faithful ones they're standing on who even gave their life, gave it, and in the process changed and broke the back of the Roman pantheon of gods. So much so that when Constantine came along, he knew it was politically wise for him to make Christianity the religion of the day. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. One writer says the church may appear as it's about to fall, but it does not fall. Listen, friends, you have the false church in Revelation and the true church. That false church is represented by entities that bring confusion, give false assurance, bring oppression, give false doctrine. They make all the people drink of the wine of their, her fornication. The false doctrines of this church, which is what the wine represents, are spread all around the world and the day is coming in which spreading those doctrines is going to get a big boost. There's two beasts mentioned in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 13, the first beast is wounded. The second beast comes along and gives it a big pick-me-up. And in the end of time, people are going to be compelled 
to worship against their conscience. The liberties of this country and the free democratic world are going to be rescinded. There is going to be a crisis that trumps our liberties. There's going to be enough fear to where we're glad to step on them. And in that moment, the world's going to be directed back to God and the false woman with false doctrines is going to tell people they have to worship a certain way. It's going to come at the point, the Bible says, to where you won't be able to buy or sell if you don't follow her. And eventually you won't be able to live. But there's good news, friends. In the book of Revelation chapter 18, the Scriptures say there's a fourth angel and it's a call to those who are in Babylon. There are people right now who are in systems of confusion and false doctrine who are yet to hear the call of Christ to come out of her. Revelation chapter 18, it says, After these things, verse 1, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, and this is a precious phrase, my people. Listen, friends. There are people listening to me right now for whom some of the things I've shared are completely new. And they've been taught through futurism and what's called dispensationalism about the secret rapture and the idea that Jerusalem's, uh, the temple's going to be rebuilt. Listen, friends, the temple on earth is not where the storyline is anymore. Jesus went up into heaven. That's where the temple that matters is. And if the temple on earth is rebuilt, it's a huge, huge distraction. But they're teaching. They're teaching doctrines that damn people to eternal torment take away the freedom to choose because if I've got to burn in hell or be with God, I guess I don't have much of a choice, do I? And then lack of freedom to know God for myself according to the dictates of my own conscience. But the Bible tells us that Babylon's going to fall in one day. And where do we get that from? What happened to literal Babylon? Spiritual Babylon's going to come undone faster than anybody can imagine. And what looked like she would stand forever is going to be gone. But God's people represented by that other city, the New Jerusalem, are going to hang on to their hope. And Jesus is going to come on that white horse in the book of Revelation. He's going to save His people. There's going to be one final battle between the confused forces of this world. Babylon became a phrase inside of Judaism that meant confusion. But I want to tell you, the word Babel itself means gate of the gods. So they've got their own teachings on God. But those that are following Jesus know that it's confusion. And that city, that group of people that are taken under the wings of that wicked woman and find that temporary assurance, they can keep being worldly. They can keep doing what everybody does in the world. They can go get their indulgences and their consciences cleaned by a human being. It's not so. And then there's a contrary group who says, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. And to go against conscience is neither safe nor prudent. That group is going to look like they're going to die. Because Satan's going to try to wipe out all of God's people, just like Nebuchadnezzar would have been happy to wipe 
<laughs> all those rebels out. Satan cares nothing for us, and he would love nothing more to, to wipe a representation of God from the face of the planet. And the last acts of planet Earth, it looks like he's going to do it. But before he does, God mounts his heavenly steed, and the angels come down through the sky, and the trumpet sounds, and it's the greatest comeback story and underdog story that's ever been told. And friends, that's the side I want to be on. How about you? We've come into the end. The church looks like it's about to fall. I want to tell you right now, inside even this denomination, there are signs of weakness. We're being called to come back to faithfulness. It looks like it's going to fall, but instead the author says it remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out. The chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless, it must take place. Now, I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I'll probably use it tomorrow. For a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. You know what, friends? The world has besieged the church. Hear me. The world has camped out around God's people. As a matter of fact, it used to be called a Christian nation, but now, if you listen to the news media, Christians, especially traditional Christians, are the bigots and the ones that are creating the problems for the new society where all is accepted and everyone feels good. The world is camped out around the church, and the church is slowly losing its strength. I hate to say it, but in this country, churches are closing at a phenomenal and alarming rate. Yes, indeed. Somebody's going to have to do the counterintuitive. And I want to talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but somebody's going to have to say inside the city, I'm speaking symbolically now, inside the, the, the outpost that every church is. My favorite author says the church is a fortress of God in a revolted world. Somebody inside the fortress is going to have to say, you know what, friends? Here's what we need to do. We're going to have to come back to our founding documents to the Bible. We're going to have to recognize we've done some things wrong. We're going to have to withdraw our affections from the world. And we're going to have to summon God for strength. And then here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to muster the little bit of strength we have left. And we're going to have to open the gates of the city and attack them. Why? Because you never win in a defensive posture. You just exist. You just survive. But Jesus said, go, and the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against you. I want you to think about it. You feel like you're in the retreat. You don't have much spiritual power. You've not committed much time to Bible study, to prayer, to offerings, to witnessing. It feels like the world's closing in on you. There's a formula, friends. Come back to Jesus. Give a simple surrender to Him and declare that you're willing to be whatever He wants you to be. And like Gideon's 300, you can take on the masses and not worry because the commander of the host of the Lord's army is by your side and He knows how to set the enemy to flight. Yes, indeed, the church is besieged right now. And Jesus gave only two commands to his apostles after he left. One was wait and pray, and the other one was go. 
And when we stop waiting and praying and stop going, we can expect that the enemy's going to say, oh, let's surround the city. It's the devil's way. It's always worked. But this city's not going to fall. This is God's kingdom. Love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. You see the book of Daniel's for the time of the end. It's all about worship. Daniel was told he couldn't pray. Did he stop praying? No. He opened the windows. He knelt in the same place he always did. They knew he would. They thought they had him, but they didn't. And how about those, those three boys, young men? They were gathered to worship an image that was all gold. It wasn't the same image that God gave to teach. It was one in which Nebuchadnezzar said, well, I'm going to teach everybody something. My kingdom will stick around forever. And when they got out to the plain of Dura, they went out there knowing what they were going to do. And they stood fearless and erect before an earthly monarch because they had bowed low before the king of kings. And you know what? He was mad. And he said, what God is there that will be able to deliver you out of our hands? And he got to see he said, the fourth person is like the Son of God. And he beckoned them, would you please come out? There wasn't the smell of smoke on their clothes, and the only thing that was burned off was the ropes. And I'm going to tell you, friends, those pale in significance to what God's going to do for His people in the end. We are not to be afraid as we face the future. We're to relive the stories, pray our lives into a similar closeness with God, and not be afraid. The Bible says, declaring of those that are going to be taken home. They are the ones who came out of great tribulation, but they have a great Savior. Everybody gets to make a decision. Am I going with my friends? Or am I going with Jesus? Am I going with the Bible or tradition? Jesus or other leaders? God's law or man's teachings? His instruction or human doctrine? God's way or man's way? Now, I've told this story. Some of you heard it before. But you know, I ran in this marathon about 10 years ago. 40-some thousand people. And you know, I want to tell you, knowing that October was coming that year, everything in my life changed. I started out, my legs hurt so bad, I actually spent some good money on some shoes. I changed my schedule all around. I was still in my 40s. I think everybody in their 40s needs to prove they're not getting old to themselves, so I tried. <laughs> and you know, I went out, I ran a few miles. I started doing that. Every Sunday I'd run about twice as much as I had ran the days of the week. I got up to where I was running 10 miles. No sweat. I can handle 10 miles. I got up to where I probably ran 18, 19, 20 miles before the marathon. And then that last week you just take a rest. You want your body to be ready to go. I was so far back in the marathon, in the corrals they call it. So I guess they think of us a little bit like cattle. But I was so far back, it took me a half hour to get to the starting line where my bib would register with the computer that would keep track of how long it took me to run that race. And there were people watching from all alongside. And then there was that guy. You know, I'm starting there in Millennial Park, and I'm, I, I crossed the line. I'm actually going to start jogging now. I mean, I've never jogged in thousands of people before. Hundreds. And all of a sudden, I'm running under that street there in Chicago, and that guy comes up alongside me, and he's just jogging with me, talking to me. And I knew the guy wasn't going to finish the race. I could tell. I knew without a fraction of a second of deliberation, this guy will not make it. You say, how'd you know? Well, I could have closed my eyes and, not, and known. For one thing, I looked at him, 
and he had not a stitch of running clothes on. Not a stitch. Now, hey, there are people that run barefoot. They run in all kinds of clothes, so that wouldn't be enough. But if I would have closed my eyes, I would have known he wasn't going to make it because I could hear his cowboy boots clunking on the asphalt. He just was into the excitement, so he jumped over the rails and wanted to act like he was part of it. Listen, friends, I finished the race, praise the Lord. And I probably ran 13 miles and never even felt tired. I made it all the way up to about 20 miles before I started real feel like, I don't know if I want to go all the way. And I even had to walk for a little while. But I want to tell you something. When I saw the finish line, when I knew I was within a mile of the finish line, you can, I'll use an expression of my dad. You can bet your sweet bippy I started running again. Because there was no way I was going to walk under the finish line. Now listen, I readjusted my whole life to run that race. You don't run 20 miles on a Sunday in a few minutes. You don't run five or six miles in the morning four or five days a week. What does Paul say? Doesn't he say, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off every weight and sin that entangles us and let's run the race, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Isn't that what he says? Do you think excellence comes easy? Do you think the, the, the battle with Satan is just something that you just fall out of bed and win? No, we don't win it in our own strength, but Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to come down and stand in front of you and wield the sword. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, I'm going to come down and live inside of you and give you the armor, and you're going to fight in my strength, and I'm going to show you you can win in my strength. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to run the race for you. He says, no, this is how it works. Put one foot in front of the other and follow me, and we're going to make it. Jesus doesn't say, oh, the hills, the hills, so steep here, you can't do it. No. Do you know when they're training Navy SEALs, there's a phenomena? I think it might have been a Navy SEAL that discovered it. When you think you've gone as far as you can go, you've still got 40% left more than you know. Amazing. Now, I'm not teaching you righteousness by works on the last night of a seminar about righteousness by faith. I'm just here to tell you, But the victory you get is when you surrender your life to Christ and He lives inside of you. And you go in that yoke, the cross, together and you start getting in the battle and winning the victories. Friends, it's counterintuitive, but if you want to break out of what you're in where you're besieged by the world, get on your knees and pray, rededicate your life to Christ and say, all right, let's open the door. I'm going out to do battle. I have never pastored a church that has not done that or at least one in my district that's chosen to do it and every single time God shows up and the victories are one after another because the church is the one object enfeebled and defective as it may be the church is the one object of God's supreme 
regard. Why? Because it is a fortress in a revolted world. It's a city set on a hill. It's the light and the hope of God. It's a hospital for sinners, and it's a training establishment for soldiers in the army of Christ to go out and take more prisoners of hope. Would you be willing to help the church go forward? Then be willing in your home to make your home a church. Listen, friends, some of you need to declare a fast. You need to say, I'm not getting on the internet. I'm not listening to the radio. I'm not watching TV. I've got to recalibrate the appetites of my heart because right now my appetites are for the things that ruin me and make me weak and afraid. Yes, indeed. Babylon's going to fall. The new Jerusalem's going to come down. And this is how wicked Satan is. He's going to try one more time after the new Jerusalem is sitting on the face of this planet. It says in Revelation chapter 20, the, 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 21, that the city is there. It says that they come up on the face of the earth and surround the city. They besiege it one more time. Can you imagine? And God's going to show Himself strong to save one last time. And then the battle is going to be over. And the jubilation is going to begin in a way it's never begun before. Yes, friends, tonight, let's run that race looking unto Jesus. Deacons, if you'll pass out our cards, I'd like to ask you to make a decision on the last night of this. I'm not going to make this long. You're about to receive a card called The Fall and the Call. It has six boxes on it. Please put your name on it. Put the date on it. And I want to go over these six boxes with you while you're getting this card. The first box says, I want to love and follow Jesus all the way. I hope everybody here will think and pray about checking that out. At least check Jesus out if you've never checked Him out before. I want to love and follow Jesus all the way. I certainly would check that box if I was listening tonight to a presentation. The second box says... I'm interested in baptism or rebaptism as a public confession of my faith in Him. Some of you may have so broken the covenant by worldly living that you'd like to say to the church family, to the angels in heaven, and to Jesus Himself, I'm recommitting myself to you in rebaptism. But there may be some listening to me, and on the internet, friends, I'm inviting you to, to make a decision in your mind. Write it down. I'm interested in baptism or rebaptism as a public confession of my faith in Him. Listen, in this fellowship, nobody's baptized right away. Jesus said, count the cost. Make sure it's what you want to do. The third box going down says, I want to schedule a visit with a pastor or a spiritual leader about questions I have. Listen, I'm a very busy person, but I would love to visit with you if you have a question. And it might be that it would be one of my friends, associates, elders, or deacons in this church. But there's somebody that would be glad to sit and talk with you about the questions you have. Top right box. I would like to study more about the things I've heard during Jesus on Prophecy. Folks, I encourage you, study to show yourself approved and have confidence to be able to explain what you believe. Put other things out of your life and put Bible study in. The fifth box. I choose to keep the seventh day Sabbath as Jesus did. I talked about that last night. I talked about it because it's right there at the center of the commandments. It's the relationship commandment. It's the one that says, remember, you know, I learned something very interesting at the mosque today. That in Arabic, the word for man means forgetful. 
I said to my wife when we left the mosque, I said, it's interesting that the relationship with God, the commandment says, remember. I find that as a very interesting and not coincidental thing. We tend to forget God said in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. And lastly, I want to come out of Babylon and all the confusion that surrounds false teaching. Listen, friends, Babylon for you may be a life that's full of confusion and disarray as you're the God of your own life. It may be that you're in a church that's teaching false doctrine and you've learned true doctrine in this short series we've had. Check this box if you want to come out of Babylon and the confusion that surrounds false teaching. Tonight, friends, Jesus has protected our decision to choose. But there was an invitation. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I'm going to end Jesus on prophecy for the evening sessions like I started it. If a man comes into your meeting, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, and the secrets of his heart are revealed... He'll fall down on his face and worship God. I don't know what God's saying to you, but I know the Holy Spirit's alive and he's speaking. What's God calling you to do? Jesus stands at our door and he knocks. It's the door to our heart. It's the door to our church. If anyone hears my voice and opens it, it's that inner witness I've talked with you about. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. I, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Friends, don't give up. Jesus is coming. I want to encourage you, make a decision. Now this card, I'm inviting you to turn it in. We've got pathfinders at the back of this sanctuary. Just turn your card upside down and drop it in that offering plate that they have there. Let me know how God has been speaking to you and where your journey's going, if you would. And friends... I hope that you can join me tomorrow morning for the last in this series and on next Wednesday night when we start unsealing the book of Daniel. It'll be a 60-minute program, a little simpler than this one, teaching format. Friends, follow Jesus wherever He's leading. Make Him the priority of your life. There are storm clouds on the horizon, but our hearts are not failing us for fear. As a matter of fact, Paul says our lack of fear is a sign of perdition to those who persecute us. I invite you to stand, friends, tonight. And let's ask God to have a benediction prayer on the last of our 12 nights in Jesus' own prophecy. Lord, there's not a person here tonight that you did not call and bring by some invitation. Your spirit is alive. Your love is great. Your word is true. And so I pray now, Lord, bless us each of us have been given a chance to make some sort of a decision, Lord. Whether we're watching on the internet or whether we're here in this auditorium, I pray may we be sensitive to the inner voice of the Holy Spirit who brings to our minds and our hearts conviction. Oh Lord, may we follow conviction as it is verified in the Word. May we not be taken advantage of by feeling but when these feelings line up with the truths of the Bible, I pray, Lord, may we follow them to the freedom they represent. Now, Lord, the Sabbath has come. I pray for a Sabbath rest in our hearts and minds. I pray for a gathering tomorrow morning. And I ask, Lord, as we come to the last of what will be of the Jesus on Prophecy Seminar series, 
May it live where we find hope and strength, and may we determine by taking advantage of the choice you've protected that we could make to follow. Thank you for being a patient and gracious God. Thank you for all my friends that have been here tonight. And please bless them now as they go quietly to your home, their homes. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.